since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Pan and Jim Sanders have a report for the birds that highlight beneficial birds for farmers on a variety of landscapes. Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with Heather Brown from the Office of Sustainable Energy at the Government Center in Monticello, New York. In the segment Now You Know, we'll hear about programs that promote solar energy in Sullivan County. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. I'm Barbara Klein. Hot, dry, and windy conditions in southern Oregon are still fueling the bootleg fire. It's now spread to more than 425 square miles. The bootleg is the biggest fire among dozens burning in western states. Brian Bull of member station KLCC reports Oregon's congressional delegation is pressing the Federal Emergency Management Agency for answers on how it will respond. Among those who signed off on the letter to FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell is U.S. Senator Ron Wyden. He's requesting that FEMA detail steps it's taken to make disaster assistance easier to process and deliver in the wake of a major wildfire. Because Oregonians really feel that after they've been hit by a disaster, these horrendous weather challenges, the last thing they need is to get hit with another round of excessive bureaucratic red tape. Last year's wildfires destroyed more than a million acres and leveled entire communities across Oregon. FEMA denied many relief requests, citing potential fraud or incomplete applications. For NPR News, I'm Brian Bull in Eugene. In Western Europe, the death toll continues to rise after record rainfall triggered devastating floods. European leaders are blaming climate change for the extreme rain. More than 150 people are confirmed dead in Germany and Belgium. As Rebecca Rosman reports from the Belgian city of Liège, rescue workers are scrambling to find dozens of others missing. Additional rescue teams from France and Italy have been sent to Belgium to assist with the search and rescue. Meanwhile, Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo has declared Monday a national day of mourning. The Meuse River, which runs through the city centre of Liège, overflowed, and residents were asked to evacuate or seek higher ground. Hundreds remain unaccounted for in western Germany, where bursting dams and riverbanks destroyed homes, uprooted streets, and disconnected power lines. The village of Schuld was completely destroyed, with aerial footage showing residents standing on collapsed rooftops waiting to be rescued. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Liège, Belgium. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards says falsehoods about COVID-19 vaccines are deterring too many people from getting vaccinated. The CDC says some 36% of Louisiana's population is fully vaccinated, and Bell Edwards says that's not enough. We're thankful for everybody who's decided to do that, um, but that's not high enough. There's not enough immunity across the state in the various communities that comprise our state uh, to ward off transmission. 
The CDC says the vast majority of new coronavirus infections in the country are among the unvaccinated. This is N. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, we have the segment Now You Know. We'll hear about programs that promote solar energy in Sullivan County. But first, Pat and Jim Sanders have a report for the birds that highlights beneficial birds for farmers on a variety of landscapes. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Good morning. This is Jim and Pat Sanders for Farm and Country, and our program is For the Birds. This week, we'd like to talk about the big subject of birds that are beneficial to farmers. Whether your farm is hay, grass and grain fields, an orchard, or vegetable crops, birds can definitely help with pest control and add to the beauty of your surroundings. Today's modern and organic farmers are always on the hunt for cheap, innovative ways to control pests, minus the chemical additives. Birds are an ally in the chemical-free war on bugs. And best of all, they come with little or no price tag. There's little question that birds benefit farms in controlling agricultural pests. If you have a lot of bird diversity, you'll have fewer insects. But many farmers wrongly consider them a detriment to successful growing. While it is true that some species, like crows, can cause extensive crop damage if left to their own devices, most birds will actually leave plants alone and eat damaging insects instead. These aren't new ideas either. As early as the late 1880s, federal scientists with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Division of Economic Ornithology opened an investigation into complaints by farmers who were concerned that birds were destroying their crops. These farmers sought permission to shoot any birds that flew into their fields, regardless of species. But the government study, one of the first to explore the interaction of birds, pests, and agriculture, produced some unexpected results. This federal research showed that only 10% of all bird species were doing damage. The rest, 90% of the nation's birds, were found to be a huge benefit to the farms. The studies went far beyond field observations by examining the stomach contents of birds to determine food habits of more than 50 birds. They concluded that the great majority of land birds subsist on insects during the period of nesting and molting, and also feed their young only insects during the first few weeks after hatching. Many species live almost entirely upon insects, taking vegetable food only when insects are not available. They found that in the course of a year, 
Birds destroy an incalculable number of insects, and it is difficult to overestimate the value of their services in helping to control pests. In winter, in the northern part of the country, insects become scarce or entirely disappear. Many species of birds, however, remain during the cold season and subsist on vegetable food, such as the seeds of weeds. Here is yet another useful function of birds, destroying these weed seeds and thereby lessening their growth the next year. So Jim, let's look at some specific birds that are beneficial to farmers. The eastern bluebird, which frequents orchards and gardens, has a diet in which 68% consists of insects like beetles, grasshoppers, caterpillars, and other harmful pests. In winter, they eat mainly weed and wild plant seeds. They can be encouraged to nest near farms by providing wild bluebird boxes, as we have discussed in an earlier program. Another bird, Pat? Well, there are the swallows. Tree swallows, barn swallows, cliff swallows, and martens. They are voracious eaters of flying insects, which they catch in flight. Watching their airborne acrobatics is entertaining, and because of their insect-eating appetites, they are encouraged as welcome allies on many farms. Field observation shows that the food of swallows consists of the smaller insects captured in midair or picked from the tops of tall grass or weeds. This observation is borne out by an examination of stomachs, which shows that the food is made of many small species of flying beetles, many species of mosquitoes and their allies, together with large quantities of flying ants and other similar insects. Most of these are either injurious or annoying, and the numbers destroyed by swallows are not only beyond calculation, but almost beyond imagination. So it's a good idea to encourage swallows, especially by putting up nesting boxes. And now that 99% of our insect-eating bat species have been wiped out by white-nose disease, these birds which hunt on the wing are more important than ever. Can you suggest another helpful bird, Jim? I certainly can. There are so many. Examples are eastern meadowlarks and bobolinks, which are members of the blackbird family. And these are birds that we often see in grass and hayfields. 74% of their food is insects with vegetable matter the rest. The insects are mostly ground species, such as beetles, bugs, grasshoppers, crickets, and caterpillars, with a few flies, wasps, and spiders. Numerous white grubs are also eaten, and these are among the worst enemies to many cultivated crops, notably grasses and grains, and to a lesser extent, strawberries and garden vegetables. Caterpillars form a very constant element of their food, and in May, they constitute over 24% of their diet. May is also the month when the dreaded cutworm begins its deadly career, and then the meadowlarks and bobolinks do some of their best work. Most of these caterpillars are ground feeders and are overlooked by birds which habitually frequent trees, but these birds find and devour them by thousands. Seeds of weeds, principally ragweed, barnyard grass, and smartweed, are eaten from November to April. There's been a steep decline in both of these birds, mainly due to the loss of their habitat, that is, meadows and hayfields. Early mowing, overgrazing, and use of pesticides and general land use changes have been harmful to them. Farmland conservation practices are vital to the survival of these birds. The issue of hay harvesting is a complex one. To protect bobolinks and meadowlarks, 
it would be ideal to harvest before or after the breeding and fledging season, which in our area is May 15th to June 30th. If you have a choice, it would be very helpful to these beneficial birds if your hay cutting could be done before mid-May and after June 30th. What about the flycatchers, Pat? Oh, yes. The flycatchers, particularly Phoebes and Eastern Kingbirds, can be important allies. The Phoebe subsists almost exclusively upon insects, most of which are caught on the wing. Over 89% of the year's food consists of insects and spiders, while wild fruit constitutes the remainder. The insects belong chiefly to noxious species and include many click beetles, may beetles, and weevils, specifically the corn leaf beetle, which feeds on corn, the 12-spotted cucumber beetle, and the striped cucumber beetle, both of which seriously injure and sometimes destroy cucumber and squash vines, and the locust leaf miner, which is sometimes so numerous that all the locust trees over large areas are defoliated. There's hardly a more useful species about the farm than the Phoebe, and it should receive every encouragement. Any other ideas, Jim? Certainly. Raptors like red-tailed hawks and long-eared owls and barn owls are also strong allies. Rabbits and rodents make up a large portion of their diet. For those with hay fields or grain storage, their use of mice and rats, among others, for food means there are fewer rodents that you'll be feeding in the winter. They'll also take snakes or lizards if the opportunity persists. There are obviously many other bird species that can help on the agricultural scene, but Pat, can you mention a good way to attract insect-loving birds to organic and other farms? Well, a habitat study by a University of Florida researcher, Gregory Jones, showed that the farms that did best were those that grew ornamental flowers, particularly sunflowers. He found beneficial birds, such as cardinals, bluebirds, and great crested flycatchers were present in abundance in such fields. Tall, stalky sunflowers planted near rows or staked in separate plots offered perch and protection to many prodigious insect eaters. Observations of how birds were using the fields indicated that they were using the sunflower plants to fly to first, then forage into the crop vegetation from them, then retreat back to the flowers for cover. Planting sunflowers may be a simple application that can be useful in many places. In the long run, attracting birds to farms may prove a sound long-term management tool for farmers. We hope you've enjoyed this week's segment. This has been Pat and Jim Sanders of the Northeast Pennsylvania Audubon Society, and we're For the Birds. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Today I'll be speaking with Heather Brown, Sustainability Coordinator in the Office of Sustainable Energy at the Sullivan County Government Center in Monticello. Heather's going to tell us about the Climate Smart Community Program and particularly about solar energy programs. Heather, you have a staff, it's not just you. I have two staff members. They're both regular part-time. They both work three days a week. That's Carol Roig and Stephen Stewart, and they are wonderful human beings and really wonderful employees to work with. 
What role do your staff members have? The projects are varied, and usually what we are doing is pretty new because it's only in the last few years that we've seen a pretty rapid shift towards taking climate policy, sustainable policy, pretty seriously at the state level. And as that happens, of course, there's new regulations, new policies, new programs that come out. So usually what we're working on are things that we have not typically worked on here in Sullivan County. We work on things like greenhouse gas emissions inventory. That's one thing that Stephen's working on right now. We work on education outreach. That tends to be one of Carol's specialties because she is a master when it comes to communicating information. And there's other items like purchasing policies that we have to look at. Uh, That's one of our initiatives right now, as well as evaluation of county data so we can actually monitor our progress. So that's just a smattering of some of the items that kind of come across our desk. (laughs) Heather, I want to talk a little bit about green energy. Can you tell us what are the initiatives to encourage the use of green energy? Do you go to the public or do you just talk to big companies that install solar panels? How do you approach this? One of the ways that we can and that we have in the past is working with our planning department and providing comments to municipalities who are passing solar zoning ordinances. That's a local kind of thing? Yes, for community solar and as well as for anything that goes on your building, I mean, for personal use or on your property for personal use, that would go through your local building department and your local planning boards. When the planning department has the opportunity to comment on the solar zoning laws, we usually see those laws at some point and give them our feedback. One of the items that we encourage municipalities to undertake is to adopt something called the Unified Solar Permit. The Unified Solar Permit is for what we call small solar. That's for solar that would go on your rooftop, in your side or backyard, would go somewhere on a residence's property where that energy is created and used on site. And we encourage people to to investigate that and to see if that's a viable option for them. By adopting a unified solar permit, municipalities can streamline that process much more easily and send everything through their building department so it does not necessarily require planning board approval, site plan approval. It's just a straight unified solar permit that is uh, standardized by the state so that the developers or the installers know what they're looking at. It's very clear. The residents know what they're looking at, and it's just common standards. It establishes kind of like that common standard uh, across municipal boundaries. The unified solar permit kind of streamlines the residential solar process, and it's quick and easy to adopt. Many of our municipalities have already adopted it, and it's been, I think, pretty successful. Do you know if it's likely to save money for the consumer if they go with solar panels near or on their house? The thing is with solar is that when you buy it for your for your personal property, it's a capital investment. It's the same as putting a roof on your house or new siding on your house, uh, redoing the insulation in your house. When you put solar on your property and you're going to be reaping the benefits from that, there is a large upfront cost. There are incentives that are out there to help with those upfront costs that may range from a rebate from the state, tax incentive, all the way down to low interest financing options. But there's still going to be that upfront cost. What we have found, depending on your utility territory, is going to kind of dictate how much you're spending every month in electric consumption. But a right-sized solar array on your house 
if you have the means to do the financing and to actually install that on your house, will save you money, particularly in the long run. Most of the solar arrays are paid off via loans within 10 to 15 years, and solar panels last at least 20 to 25 years. Most of your warranties will be for 20 years. You're probably going to get at least another five years after that. So after you pay off the panels, you have probably another five to 10 years of essentially free electricity at that point coming into your house. So they do pay themselves off. And if the financing is structured properly, you should see no impact to your overall household budget while you're paying off that initial investment. So that's for residential. Now, what about for the big commercial arrays? And I know that we have at least one big commercial array in Sullivan County, and maybe others are in the planning stages. What kind of hurdles do companies have to overcome in order to put up those arrays? There's a wide range of issues that they have to address. We actually have several functioning, fully constructed, and generating community solar projects in Sullivan County. I'm aware of the one out in Calicoon. There's one by the Villa Roma that's very large. There's one on Sackett Lake. There's many of these actually around the community. And if you know where they are and you really go looking for them, you can find them. You're not going to see them necessarily from the highway or just driving up. But if you know where they are, you can certainly find them. There's items like obviously... There's a lot of hesitation about solar just from a visual standpoint. It's new. It looks very industrial, even though I've said in the past, I would love to have a solar farm next to me because they're very, very quiet and there's no traffic going in and out. They would be just like the absolute most quiet, best neighbors that I could possibly hope for. But certainly from a visual standpoint, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and you have people who think that they're just fine and you have others that think that they're not so fine. And the companies absolutely have to address those concerns in the community. Another area of concern is the competition for open land. You don't want to take down trees, but you also don't want to be constructing solar panels across all of our prime agricultural lands. We have to find the balance between the need for energy, the need for farms, the need for forest. There is a way for these things to all coexist together. It just takes a hard look at each individual project to find out what that balance is. And then, of course, there's the infrastructure issues. When companies come in with these large solar arrays, they do have to make sure that the local grid electric infrastructure is capable of handling them. This is a lot of electricity that's being produced by these solar farms, and we need to make sure that that energy is safely being transmitted onto the New York electric grid, particularly through NYSEG and Orange and Rockland and Central Hudson, which are our utilities that are active in Sullivan County, that have territory in Sullivan County. So making sure that the infrastructure upgrades necessary to the grid to make sure there's a safe interconnection of those solar farms is a very important step and a very big regulatory hurdle that kind of needs to be cleared before a project can get off the ground. Do you have any idea how many people in Sullivan County are currently being served by solar energy? You know, I don't. I don't know how many people. It's community solar is a subscription program, basically, where a resident or a small business can sign up through a local community solar provider, and they will actually be credited on their monthly electric bill for the solar energy that's generated by their local community solar project. It's not something that's regulated by the government. It's not something that necessarily comes across my desk where I see actual numbers on a regular basis. But to my knowledge, every active solar farm in Sullivan County is currently fully subscribed with a waiting list. So there's certainly a desire from people to participate in the solar industry. And when you don't necessarily have 
either room on your property to install solar directly on your house or on your land, or maybe you don't have the money to make that upfront capital investment in solar, Community Solar offers an easy way for anyone, whether they be a renter or they be a homeowner or a business owner, to participate in the solar industry in New York State to reduce their electric bills by about 10%. That's what I've saved since I signed up with the Community Solar Program. And to also know that they're taking part in in the efforts to reach our climate goals and our sustainability goals. Are the solar arrays being put up by private companies, or is there any government funding involved in this? The community solar farms that you see are privately held. They are constructed by private firms. There are incentives right now through the New York Sun Initiative, and those incentives will gradually be phased out over time as the solar industry really launches. As of right now, yes, there are state incentives. There are state tax incentives and whatnot for these companies to build the farms, but they will be phased out over time until it's a completely self-sufficient industry, which is happening, I think, more quickly than anyone maybe imagined uh, five to ten years ago. (laughs) Do you have any idea whether the solar energy has reduced the usage of electricity from NYSEG, Central Hudson, and Orange and Rockland? Well, back in the late 90s, the New York State energy markets, or the energy grid, it was deregulated. And what that means is that NYSEG, Orange Rockland, and Central Hudson are no longer the producers of electricity. So they don't actually have any plants that are making electricity. That's all mostly private now. NYSEG, Central Hudson, and Orange Rockland are responsible for the delivery of the electricity to your house on their distribution and transmission lines. So when you receive your electricity at your house, it's being delivered to your house by the local utility through their grid infrastructure. But the electricity itself is being generated in a plant that's owned not by the utility, somewhere else in the state, somewhere else in the country even, and NYSEG is just delivering that to your house. So you're not reducing the amount of electricity necessarily that comes across NYSEG's wires. They're delivering electricity. So they're, they're just delivering you electricity wherever that source may be coming from. It gets a little bit more complicated after that and actually finding how this interacts with the whole New York energy market and the New York independent system operator, which is responsible for managing that market. <laughs> so they would be delivering the solar-generated energy as well. Yes, when you purchase electricity from that community solar farm, no one's going to come to your house and run a wire from your house to that community solar farm. They're actually still using NYSEG's lines to deliver that electricity to your house. So the grid remains an extremely important piece of meeting sustainability goals. Without investment in maintaining a efficient, strong, resilient grid, we can't get the electricity to where it needs to go regardless of where it's produced from. So NYSEG continues to be the major player in electricity, along with Orange Rockland and Central Hudson for the folks living in their territories. And that will not change. NYSEG is our utility, and they continue to deliver electricity every month, (laughs) every day. (laughs) What is your office's role in encouraging the use of solar and encouraging these companies to come in and put up solar arrays? I would say my office does not necessarily go out and encourage companies to come. What we rather do is work with places like the Department of Planning. We work with the Sullivan County Legislature. We work with the Sullivan County Manager. We work with Sullivan County Public Works. And we develop programs and policies, really, that 
enable companies or to enable programs to come into Sullivan County that will, from our perspective, benefit the county while also protecting what we already have here and what we already know and love. So now you know what Sullivan County is doing to encourage the use of green energy. We've heard about this from Heather Browns, Sustainability Coordinator in the Office of Sustainable Energy. If there's a topic about country life that you'd like me to explore, email me, stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. that you enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Pat and Jim Sanders and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Heather Brown, from the Office of Energy Sustainability at the Government Center in Monticello, New York, this week speaking about programs that promote solar energy in Sullivan County. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on WJFF. Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hi, I'm Nina Totenberg. Are you someone who talks about how great public radio is, but you're still not a donor? Rather than wait for the next pledge drive, you can support the programs you love by donating that unwanted vehicle. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to the 